All right, where we've been. We have been in the book of Revelation the last several weeks. We've said that Revelation is four things. It could be more than four things. It's not less than. And so we've said it's a letter that John wrote this book to people in real time. And so it's a letter, which means it, doesn't, it can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. So it's written to seven churches. It's a letter. It's also a, an apocalypse. It's an unveiling of Jesus. It's a, a revealing to us of who Jesus is. That means if we come out of this book and we're more confused and we are clear on who Jesus is, we've read it wrong. So it's an apocalypse. It's a letter. It's an apocalypse. Third, it's a prophecy. It's designed to both convict and comfort. It's designed to both bring peace and convict in areas that we are uh, maybe not in line to the kingdom of Jesus. And so it's a letter. It's an apocalypse. It's a prophecy. And then lastly, it's a liturgy of worship. And so it is designed to stir us for Jesus. It's designed to cause our hearts to be warmed by who Jesus is. And so uh, Revelation 6 is, 6 is typically two things. It's typically the time where people begin to get wonky with the book. Or it's typically the time where people decide, you know, the first five chapters were good, and it's typically like that. We kind of just kind of close up, we're done, Revelation 6 gets a little chaotic for us. And so for us, um, it is a gift. The whole Bible is a gift. And so Revelation 6 is going to be intense, okay? And then in Revelation 7, it's going to be very comforting. So that's the way it's designed to be read. Some intensity is going to happen. And then some comfort's going to take place. And you're probably going to feel that as we navigate through it. So let's get it. Revelation 6, we're starting in verse 1. Let's read. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I look, and behold, a black horse. And this rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. So we begin in chapter 6, and we meet some characters, we're going to meet some more. Um, but it's interesting, and we need to note this as we begin this, that in the first voice, the verse, it says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. That's super important for us to understand as we get into this. So Revelation uh, 6, without Revelation 4 and 5 as the baseline for us, will become a weight that we were not designed to carry. 
So it is critical, critically important to jump into Revelation 6 only with the scaffolding and the anchor of what we've just read last week in Revelation 4 and 5. Again, Revelation, without the vision of Revelation 4 and 5, Revelation 6 becomes unbearable. So where were we in Revelation 4 and 5? There is a throne, and there's one on the throne. If you remember that from last week or listened to it on the podcast, it is not up for grabs, right? We talked about that last week. That throne is, there's no competition there. There's no who's going to be on It's steady. It's consistent. It's stable. There is only one on the throne, and he's seated. And he's seated with a scroll in his right hand. And this scroll is the story of, of human history and the plan by which God is going to bring forth shalom. How is he going to fix the world? How is he going to redeem it? How is he going to restore it? We see that the scroll is, the, is the, arch, uh, the, the plans that he's going to use to redeem and restore this world. And then we see at his right hand is a lamb. The only one worthy, if you remember last week, there was a shout into the world, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And looked in heaven, earth, under the earth, no one, no one at all was worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. But then, in Revelation 5, we hear this phrase, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has overcome. And John looks and he doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb slain standing. And that lamb takes the scroll from the one on the throne. And so remember this context when we get into the mayhem of chapter 6, that this is the steadiness that we're coming from. There's a lamb holding the scroll and he's the one that's popping off these seals. It's here in the most stable reality in the universe. We can't underemphasize that. The most stable reality in the universe is in Revelation 4 and 5, and it's here that we enter into this second window. So this window is open, and we see that the one, uh, the lamb, has the scroll with the seals on it. And so the context for seals, because most of us don't really understand that, uh, the scroll is is a sign of uh, the seals are a sign of ownership, and so you're not allowed to break open seals. Throughout, uh, in the first century, there was this common. If someone was given a scroll with seals on it, you know unless you had the authority to open those scrolls, you were not allowed to break their seals or you might die. So it's critically important that you get the authority from the author to be able to open up those uh, seals. And so Jesus obviously has that authority. So we meet the four horsemen. And I know where your mind goes. I know some of you that were in the 90s and like in WCW. I know you liked Ric Flair and the, and the gang. You might have a picture even up here. I don't know. Those guys right there. So you might be aware, like, are those the guys? Is this the fulfillment of the prophecy, Ric Flair? Uh, no, it's not, okay? Not them, thankfully. Um, but the four horsemen are the major players of suffering. They're the major players of pain. They're the major players of death among humanity. They represent the kinds of things that happen when Jesus and his kingdom press upon the kingdom of this world. These things erupt when Jesus' kingdom pushed down upon the kingdom of this world. So what we're going to find throughout this is we're going to see a parallel text in Matthew 24 where the antagonist is introduced 
The antagonist that we see throughout the scripture, Satan himself, that he is the one that's the mastermind behind most of this. He was cast down from heaven and he's seeking to wreak havoc. We're going to see him throughout the story of Revelation. He's directing the powerful culture of death. We're seeing that he's even trying to seduce the people of God. And so we see that as we enter into this text. And so we meet the first horse is a white horse. And this is not who we think that he is. If you go to Revelation 19, you'll find that there's a picture of Jesus in Revelation 19. And he's on a white horse. And his name is called Faithful and True. But in Revelation 6, this first seal, this ain't Jesus here. This one here in Revelation 6, that he came to go out to conquer, and he's seeking to be a conqueror. It gives a clue that this is not a good guy. The power of evil is imitating Jesus here. We see that a crown was given to this one, this writer. Again, this is another clue for us. This is crucial, crucial to observe that evil is not in charge. There's one on the throne. It's not yin-yang. There's only one that's on the throne. Evil is not on the throne. Evil can only operate if it's given permission. Evil is on a leash. Evil can only operate by authorization from the one on the throne. And so he's imitating Jesus, this first horseman. We see a picture of this in Matthew 24. We went through this, I don't know, a little over a year ago when we went through the, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but we read a similar text in Matthew 24. Uh, and it says this in verse 4 and 5. Jesus says that it's called the Olivet Discourse. This is his last discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. It says, uh, Jesus answered them. See that no one, mis no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So this is what's happening here. We see this, this character here seeking to imitate Jesus in so many ways to lead people astray. We find this outside the church, and we find this inside the church. Outside the church, there is this searching, this desire to unlock the scroll, there's this yearning within our culture, our context, and Western civilization to have the kingdom of Jesus without the king. There is this longing and secularism, which is everywhere now, seeking to take the benefits of the, benefits of the gospel without the good news of the gospel. I want to have all the goods of the gospel. Give me the kingdom without the king. Give me utopia without the one who's in charge to bring forth shalom and utopia. Give me everything but Jesus. I want all the benefits of the kingdom without the king himself. We see it constant. There's a yearning for perfection. There's a yearning to bring forth justice. That is the new buzzword for our day. There's a longing for justice to happen without the one who's able to bring forth justice. Over and over again, there's this imitation outside of the church. And then inside the church, man, and, and segments, there's this bad teaching on who Jesus is. Just confusion. That he doesn't promise to give you an easy life. He doesn't uh, lead you to have whatever you want. It's so easy to believe in an idol, throw the name Jesus on it, who isn't Jesus at all. And it's here where we're reminded that we want to be a people who follow this Jesus, all of him, not just the parts we like, but all of him, and submit to all of his authority and allow all of him to be our guide. So the first seal represents a chain of events that human history has known all too well. And then we get the second one, this beautifully red 
bright horse. The rider was permitted here to take peace from the earth. Violence and war came from this rider. Um, Eugene Peterson says uh, about the red horse, but uh, this horse is evil. It is opposed to Christ. Christ does not sit. Uh, not, uh, sometimes I do this where I write out quotes and I don't read them over again, and then it just makes me look like an idiot up here. But Christ does not sit on the red horse ever. I'm trying to work on that, actually, even with texting. Sometimes I text before I read. Nonetheless, here we are. So uh, Eugene said that, which none of us got because the quote was just absolutely butchered. But nonetheless, Jesus more clearly said in Matthew 24, 6, that and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. So the second horse is referencing wars and rumors of wars. Great tragedy occurs from this bright red horse. Tragedy occurs because humanity, humanity we are constantly labeling the wrong enemy as the enemy. That's why war occurs. Cur- occurs. Over and over again, we are labeling a political party, we're labeling a type of people, we're labeling a nationality, we're lab- I mean, you name it, over and over again, we are labeling the wrong people as our enemy, and we end up going uh, to war over the effect and not the cause. Oftentimes, I mean, that's what Paul tells us, we don't fight against flesh and blood. The principalities and powers and rulers and authorities, those are the things that we fight against, but we blame the effect and not the cause. And over time, when that happens, war exists. The antagonist ruling here is seeking to devour and to use people and provinces to bring about evil in the world. See, our soul is bent toward war from childhood. And when it bubbles up and gains consensus, warfare occurs. And so the horse here seeks to allow humanity to devour itself. What an easy task. Just turn you against you and have at it. And war occurs and mayhem and tragedy takes place. Man, there's a better way. It's not this horse, it's Jesus, and we're going to find that in time. The third horse we see is a black horse. There's a pair of scales in this horse's hands. A statement made, a quart of wheat for a denarii, and that's a day's wage. And so what does that mean? A quart of wheat is the amount of wheat for one person to be able to live throughout a day. So a day's wage is able to feed one person just enough to get through the day. See, when violence and war um, assert themselves, food therefore becomes rations. And the irony here, as you read the text, is that uh, the price of wine is unaffected, which means the rich get richer and then the poor become even more Oppress. And so there's a physical famine that's happening here, but if we read a little deeper into what's happening, there's also a, a famine of the soul. It's not just famine through a lack of food, there's also a famine of the soul. Is this not the banner over our day? That we live in a generation that is starving from a soul level. We live in a time in history that we have more access to anything. I mean, you know. You name it put, it, on, put it in your Amazon app, and you got it at most within two days. We have access to whatever we want, any movie we want, all forms of technology. We can buy whatever we want, and we don't have the money for it. We can just get a credit card and use that debt to pay for it. We can do whatever we want, and yet we are starving on the inside. 
uh, Elijah Del Medigo said this, the brutal, painful fact is this. The average person living in a Western country increasingly has nothing to live for. His little family, a few friends, no neighborhood, no community, and no God. He exists mostly as a ritual of economic activity, a number on a balance sheet. This is secularism at its finest. It's hollow. It is hollow. We can get so sucked into this as well. This is what Solomon taught us. Remember in the fall we went through Ecclesiastes 3,000 years ago? He said, it is vanity. If you seek to try to find the stuff under the sun to give you happiness and fulfillment, it won't. Your souls will be famines. So we see it both from a physical and from a soul level. And the fourth seal, the four fourth horseman, is a pale horse. And this, uh, this name we see in the text, is their name is Death. So Hades follows this horse. Hades is the place where people go to die in this day. So this horse is given authority to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and all kinds of things. And this horse, it mocks modern medical advancements. You think that, we think that uh, we can seek medical advancements and it's only, it only delays the inevitable of death. It only delays the inevitable. We just put more and more and more money to this black hole that will still lead us to death. And this pale horse wins in that way. And so the four writers are consistent. Always writing and always destroying. Dill Johnson, a commentator, says this. Seal 1 says, if we do not go the way of the lamb, there will be greater and greater conflict. Seal 2 says, if we do not go the way of the Lamb, there will be greater and greater violence. Seal 3 says, if we do not go the way of the Lamb, there will be greater and greater injustice and hunger. Seal 4 says, if we do not go the way of the Lamb, there will be greater and greater sickness and death. Again, chapter 6 ain't easy for us. It's a hard pill to swallow. And the church isn't spared from this. I'm not sure what your eschatological understanding of where this thing goes, but the church biblically is not spared from this. Tim LaHaye's version says that we are spared from it, but biblically says that we aren't. When we go the way of the lamb, we will feel this crunch. When we go the way of the lamb, there is not ease, but sometimes it's more trials. Again, this can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. So the question is, what's going to happen in America then? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in America. But what I do know, and what John wants us to know, is that Jesus is on his throne and that everything is moving toward worship of the Lamb. That's what we know. We don't know anything else. We pretend like we know. Over the last two years, we pretended like we knew a lot. And it started out with two weeks of, of social distancing, and we've seen where we've gone from there. You know what I mean? And so we don't know a lot about a lot. But what we do know with clarity is that this thing's moving towards one kingdom. It's not one nation, ultimately. It is one kingdom with a king named Jesus ruling and reigning. And it's him that we want to give our allegiance to. As the people of God who seek for the kingdom of God to come, A collision of kingdoms is occurring, and that's what John's telling us over and over again. There's a collision of two kingdoms, and it gets harder before it gets easier, but then it gets amazing. So stay the course. Don't quit. Lean in. He holds the scroll, and he breaks these seals. Not what we want to hear, but what we must hear if the world is to be healed. The fifth seal, we hear this cry. 
this cry comes, and we didn't read it, but I'll, I'll look at it with you real quick in verse um, 9 and 10. Yes, thank you. When, the fifth, uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? You ever felt that before? Just living in this life, just, oh, how long, God? I know your promises, but how long? It's painful here. It's a beautiful, honest cry. And the answer for them and the answer for us is the same. It is the same. It is that here and now, we will go through trials. Acts 14.22 tells us that we will go through trials. How long? How long, O oh Lord? How long until kingdom come? How long until the wrongs are right? How long until the sad things really do come untrue? How long until faith becomes sight? How long until death is put to death? How long until he will reign forever and ever? How long until he wipes away our tears? How long until these horses are put to death? That's what that cry is. How long, O Lord? And we know no king, no government, no war can rescue us until he comes. And so this fifth seal is just this cry from amidst the pain. How long, O Lord? And then we get this sixth seal which is a great earthquake in 12 and following. And it says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And they go on in verse 16. This is calling out to the mountains. These, these ones who had rebelled against the king, Jesus, they cry out and they say, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? So this symbolism here. Again, this is an apocalypse. It's an unveiling. He's using imagery to help us uh, awaken our imagination. So this is, this is communicating to the core. The cosmos is being shaken. Everything is being shaken along the way. And it says, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Those who are in rebellion to the Lamb begin to cry out, hide us. From the wrath. It's not what we think. The wrath can be a hard one for us. But again, it's not what we think. He is just, hear me when I say this, He is just giving us over, giving the world over fully to what we already want. That is the, that is the wrath of God. Him simply saying, Is that what you want? Have it. And the wrath that follows, the decay of the soul that follows, the pain and sorrow that follows by just giving us over in his judgment to us, to what we want. Again, there's nuance here. The earth is shaken and there's only one true stable thing. The very thing that keeps us from being our own God. So he's, we see that he's, uh, these ones are running, they're hiding, they're wanting to rebel against the Lamb. And the role of the church is to declare with a distinct voice that there is one who reigns. That's why when we begin to merge with the ways of this world and begin to double dip with faith and uh, syncretism in different ways, we mute the voice that we have to the world. 
We want to be distinct in this way, declaring that there is a better way and a better kingdom. So again, this is not what we want to hear, but what we must hear if the world is to be healed. That's pretty intense. And then John, he pauses, takes a breath, and provides some comfort to us in Revelation 7. We're going to spend the rest of our time here. I know we're running behind today, but good things happen today, and it's all good. There's no football, and you guys are fine. Um, <laughs> Revelation 7, before I get into that, uh, this is the, what I know about this, this is some of the most comforting material in all of the last book of the Bible. This word comfort come from, comes from Latin roots. The, the first half of comfort means with, and the second half of comfort means strength. And so Daryl Johnson again says, to comfort is to give strength in order to be and do what one ordinarily could not be or do. And so this is the comfort that's being given. And John sees two states of the church. He sees a present tense state of the church, and then he sees a future state of the church. And so let's read the present state of the church in Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no winds might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So these represent faithful Christians who persevered through difficulty. They weren't taken from difficulty. They, were, they persevered through difficulty, through the tribulation. They were squeezed, but they remained faithful. So two phrases here to mention. The first is 144,000. We'll get into that more in just a minute. Um, but it's a number he heard, and then he's going to see a very different uh, number than what he heard. We see that throughout Revelation. Uh, but it's a symbolic number. Its meaning is completion. Again, these numbers are intentional, and this means completion. It's, a rep- it's representing the number of God's people, both Gentiles and Jews. And the second thing we see is this phrase that they were sealed. Five times in this text, we see that they were sealed. And, and this language was common. The first century slaves, which again, were different than slaves that we've experienced in our own history, but they were sealed on their forehead, and they were owned by another for a period of time, and then they were set free. And so they were bought by one, and then they were owned by that one for a period of time. And in the same way, these ones are sealed, that they are uh, owned by the Lamb. By the Spirit, they are sealed. His Spirit is upon them. And he's telling them, what, what the writer is trying to do here is, going through Revelation 6, it's chaos, it's difficult, it's painful. And then Revelation 7, he's trying to tell them, you will make it through. Like, this is the point. Again, real people that are experiencing the, the pain of Rome and the tyranny of Rome are hearing, it might not get better, but know God's holding you. And that's the comfort that we see here. Those seven seals won't break you. He's saying, hold on. You were sealed before the seals were broken. Hold on. I don't know if you've dug into the spirituals, the uh, African-American brothers and sisters in our history, they, they sung songs in their own slavery. And then the songs, there was a yearning to be free. There was a, a singing of the sorrow, but more so yearning for the freedom to come. They would sing their way through sorrow. 
that life is painful, but they knew that there was a better day to come. That's what's happening here. There's a reminder of the people of God of something better to come. Don't give up. I can't soft sell to you what is to come. It may be more fierce, not less, but it's not scary for the people of God because we know where it's going and we know who is victorious. In Matthew 24, 14, we know the end of the story is moving towards this end where it says, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Jesus, he will be triumphant. Victory is ours, family. In 2019, Alex and I went to France together um, and spent about a week and a half there, spent most of our time in Paris, but then spent a day uh, up in Normandy in the northern part of France. And we spent some time just, uh, anybody been to Normandy before? Okay. So, you know, you go there and the beaches of Omaha, and it's just, it's wild to experience, go back to 1944 and what was happening there. And to catch you up to speed, in 1944, there was, uh, this place was where the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division hit the beaches of northern France in World War II on June 6th. And it shifted the course of World War II. On that day, approximately 150,000 troops invaded that beach on that day and shifted the, the war between the Allies and the Nazis. It was a dramatic shift. On that day, shifted the war. And yet it was about an, a year later before the war ended. So there's a decisive day and then a year later before the war ended. And that's where we are right now. There was a decisive day in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Victory's his. And yet we wait. And yet we feel the agony that it's not here yet. Yet, yet we cry out like the fifth seal, how long, O Lord? There's a phrase here about the great tribulation. And I have to speak to this just to make it... Um, because I know that there might be questions about this. The great tribulation means the great, great pressing. And this is an open-handed conversation point for us about the great tribulation. This would be open-handed. There are things that are closed-handed, things that we'll die for, and then things that are open-handed we might have conviction over, might have biblical reasons for it, but they're open-handed to us. And so the great tribulation that we read here uh, could mean a couple different things. It could be, uh, for many, it means the last seven years before Jesus returns. So there's kind of three camps within that. There's pre-tribulation that, that we jet before the pain, and I'm just going to say that's not, I don't, I don't think that there's any biblical pre pre presence for that. And so there's mid-tribulation, which in the middle of your tribulation, uh, before the real dark stuff comes, that uh, the people of God are taken away. And then the last would be post-tribulation, which is uh, after the tribulation, Jesus comes and we meet him in the sky. So those are some ways that you can view, it, can view this. The other way would be just referring to the crushing pressure that goes throughout human history. And so you can see it more in the literal sense or more in kind of more of a cosmic sense. But what's close-handed is that you're going to bleed. Life's going to be hard. There are going to be days where you're going to cry out, how long, O oh Lord? And in that, we can trust that he is with us and that he is for us. So we're living in this in-between time. And so we see, um, we see in the last few verses I'm going to read to us in Revelation 7, I'm going to read verse 9, and I'm going to read the last few verses at the very end. So Revelation 7, 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. I'll stop 
there. And so we see that John heard 144,000, and he looked. And what does he see? A great multitude, a number that no one can count. So he heard a specific number, but what he saw, which means that he was being communicated to, that there is a people of God that are going to be saved by him. But he looks, and he sees an endless amount of people, a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, tongue, people, nation, standing before the throne. So who is this? These are the redeemed, ransomed people of Jesus. See, Revelation 7 is given to us to keep our balance in this difficult time, to help us persevere and not give up when the pressures come upon us. We must know this in our discipleship. As we follow Jesus, there will be times that are hard. And what we take from Revelation 7 is that he is holding us. He is holding us. Though chaos increases, you are sealed by the Lamb if you trust in Him. You're secure, not safe, secure, not insulated, secure. No one, nothing in all creation can steal this from the people of Jesus. So hold on. Where compromise comes in your work environment, where compromise comes in different aspects of your life. Stay true to follow Jesus. He is holding you. And on the other side of this blip, this crunch, is a new world where we experience intimate communion with the one on the throne and the lamb by his side forever, where death is in our rearview mirror, where sin is in our rearview mirror, where pain and sorrow and difficulty in life is in our rearview mirror, where betrayal is in our rearview mirror. That is what we're hoping in. So as I close, I want to mention this comment that just happens, and you can, you can fly by it, but it's like the New Testament version of Psalm 23, and it's just too good to not read. You can see why I ask you guys to read ahead of time. We've skipped like half of this, and we've gone like way over, relatively speaking, to, in comparison to what we normally do, but that's why we want you guys to read along with this. Um, the New Testament version of Psalm 23 says this in verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is good news for us. This is comfort for us. Trials may come, but he is with us even through the valley of the shadow of death. He will not leave us. He will wipe away our tears. And we see that they've been rescued, they've been provided for, they've been protected, they've been shepherded, and they've been comforted. And we need to remember that, and they needed to remember that. On Wednesday, we're going to be going through a workshop, and we're going to be honing in on the heart of Jesus. And I want to invite you, if you haven't signed up for that, to sign up for that. It's going to be from 6 to 8 this Wednesday. We're going to have three of those coming out this fall or this spring. But I want to invite you to be a part of that. We're going to hone in on the heart of Jesus in particular. But friends, this is hope for us. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I don't know, when you read Revelation 6, maybe you feel like one of the horses is just following you. Maybe you just feel pain and difficulty and trouble. 
And I just want to remind you this morning that there's one on the throne. He is so kind. And he's with you. He's aware of pain. He's been through it himself. And he is guiding you and the best days are ahead. And we can trust him in that. Let's pray. Father, though this might feel heavy for some of us, I do thank you for the hope on the back end. Father, I give you thanks that you, you haven't sent an angel to wipe away the tears of our eyes. You haven't sent someone else, but you enter in into our world so aware of our sorrow and our pain and the difficulty because of sin and death in our lives and you comfort we thank you that you seal those that are yours, and I pray that, that would infuse us, not to laziness, but that would infuse us to follow you at all costs. Lord, let us be a people who follow Jesus. Lord, we love you, and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.